Author Eugene Peterson wrote these thought-provoking words a few years ago. God's revelation of himself is rejected far more often than it is accepted. It is dismissed by far more people than embrace it and has been either attacked or ignored by every major civilization in which it has given its witness. Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, enlightened France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, in pursuit of happiness America. The community of God's people has survived in all of these cultures and civilizations, but always as a minority, always marginal to the mainstream, and never statistically significant. The Apostle Paul will make this very clear, won't he, to the early church when this new revelation of the gospel was revealed through Jesus Christ, Paul would say it would provoke spiritual warfare like you can't imagine, so you had better suit up for the right kind of battle with the right kind of weapons and the right kind of attitude, Ephesians 6. He said that the gospel would be offensive to the unbeliever, 1 Corinthians 1.18. I mean, you can believe today that after people die, they come back reincarnated as bugs and cows, and that'll be all right. But if you believe that after death you will stand before the creator of bugs and cows, then you have become a problem. And all around the world today, ladies and gentlemen, let's never forget, the blood of martyrs is flowing. It is flowing from those who will not deny the singularity of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Because of the satanic underpinnings of false religion, the religions of the world then can tolerate just about anything and everything but true gospel-believing, Christ-exalting Christianity. Why? Because the cross of Christ strikes at the root of mankind's guilty conscience. The gospel reveals the utter futility of self-made religion. It, it even exposes mankind's intuitive, God-created knowledge of sin. It condemns self-confidence and self-help. It demands humility. It demands that self abdicate the throne room of the heart and offer it willingly to, to a crucified carpenter who is, we believe, none other than the ascended, resplendent, soon-coming, true and living, deity-embodied Lord. The world desperately wants to believe anything but that. I came across an article in USA Today dated April 2007 about a children's camp designed for children of agnostics, atheists, and humanists. Imagine being a counselor at that camp. You thought church camp was tough. The camp director said, the mission of our camp is to promote respect for others with differing viewpoints, values, and beliefs. That's all coded language, isn't it? What he really means is he wants to promote respect for everybody but Christians. He tipped his hand later in the interview when he said, we deplore, it's actually a very angry word that's covering a lot of stuff simmering. We deplore efforts that seek to explain the world in supernatural terms and to look for salvation in something other than nature. What he's saying is we're actually rather upset and irritated and angry 
for somebody to believe, to have the viewpoint that salvation must be gained from sin. And so this camp ends its week, if you can imagine it, with an exercise where every child is told to invent their own religion with a specific direction that they must create a religion that will be offensive to no one, end quote. It reminds me of that quip, God created man and man returned the favor. Listen, much of the church in the world today is not only deplored, it is openly hated and persecuted. And it started early, didn't it? In fact, no sooner than the church had, had been born in Acts 2 and the seeds of persecution were planted in the soil of, of the Roman Empire, by the time John writes this prophecy of Revelation, persecution has already been uh, fed with demonically inspired hatred. Pliny, the Roman governor living around the close of the first century, wrote, and I quote him, Christians are depraved and extravagant superstition. Their contagious superstitions have spread not only in the cities but in the villages as well. In other words, it's like a disease. It's spreading. It's contagious. Another Roman author from the first century wrote that many thousands of Christians are being put to death of which none of them did anything contrary to the Roman laws worthy of persecution. Just, just pick up the Christian journals. Go on websites that are telling the truth and you'll discover that even this week there were those who were put to death because they would not recant of their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Near the end of the first century, a Domitian took the emperor's throne from Titus, his brother. He poisoned Titus's fish dinner and became emperor. And he ratcheted up the persecution against Christians even further. He was as wicked as, as Nero. Nearly all the Roman emperors before, them, before him, in fact, proved that power corrupts. In fact, most of uh, of the Roman emperors, Gibbons writes in the fall of the Roman Empire, were either openly bisexual or homosexuality, so you can only homosexual. So you can imagine the offensive nature of Paul's letter to the Romans living right there in the capital region and his judgment on any kind of sexual activity, any kind outside of marriage. Domitian revived what he called treason trials. And, and spread this network of what they believed to be informants. And you could just about inform on anybody suspected of some kind of subversive philosophy, Domitian called it. He also conveniently determined that he was deity. That didn't help matters for the Christians any. He had coins stamped with his image, and everybody was supposed to offer the pinch of incense in honor of him. And so Caesar worship was on the rise. Add to that the fact that Domitian, like so many of these emperors, Domitian was strange. He was paranoid. He was, he, he was obsessed with so many things. I have a book called The Twelve Caesars, and pulled it out again this week to read again the chapter on a Domitian, and it just boggles the mind that these men who ruled the empire and, and what they obsessed over. I thought it was kind of interesting. Michael Grant revealed how petty Domitian had become with his obsession. He was even obsessed with losing his hair. He even wrote a book called The Care of Hair, which didn't do him any good because he lost it. Anyway, but if he happened to overhear anybody making fun of somebody going bald, he would throw that guy in jail. Now, I don't like that part. In fact, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> it's funny, last week my assistant, I just inter- introduced earlier the one improperly dressed, um, <laughs> actually told me that he was going to give his son, Max, 
a haircut. Evidently, Josh is the guy in the house who gives the haircuts. And his son's only two, only two years of age. And Josh told Max, all right, son, I'm going to give you a haircut. And then he kind of teased him. He said, I'm going to cut it all off. And Max's eyes got real big. And he said, like Pastor Davy." I have banished him to the nursery. I just want you to know. Well, I want you to understand these strange days. When you think that you might be under some kind of leader or ruler that's strange, we have no idea. John here is the last of the apostles. In fact, the others have already been martyred according to tradition passed down. Matthew has already been killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Nathaniel has been flayed to death with a whip in Armenia. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross where he hung for two days, alternating between consciousness and unconsciousness. And when he'd wake up, he'd preach the gospel before dying. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear in India. I've had the privilege of standing on the spot where they say that he died. A martyr the cause of Christ, Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace the traitor Judas, had already been stoned and beheaded. Paul had been tortured and beheaded by Nero already. Tradition also claimed that Peter, executed by Nero a year earlier, hanging upside down on a cross at his own request. James, the brother of Jesus, not one of the twelve, but the leading elder of the young church in Jerusalem had been thrown off the temple wall. He survived the hundred-foot fall, and then his enemies beat him to death with a club. So get the setting of what it must have felt like to be a Christian in that day. John, the last living of the twelve, is old. He is exiled to an island reserved for criminals and political prisoners to work in the mines. Imagine what this revelation meant to the early church and the prospects of the infant church. They look bleak. What hope do we have? Has Christ, the risen Lord, cared? Does he know how we suffer? These Questions, ladies and gentlemen, will vanish after reading just the opening paragraphs of this book of prophecy. Jesus Christ says, oh, I am alive and well. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the one who is and was and is to come. I know everything. I am aware. I have not abandoned you. What hope, what hope to people dying for their faith What encouragement to every Christian in every generation who is in need of courage and perseverance and and accountability for those straying from the truth? Now, beginning in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1, where we left off in our last study, John makes some personal comments that I think we ought to take some time to look at briefly. You could call these biographical snapshots of the apostle John. The first one is humility. It'll be wonderfully encouraging to the believers. He calls himself in verse 9, look, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in this this tribulation, the kingdom, I'm, I'm with you, he says, I am persevering in Jesus. John, by the way, had every reason to lay out his resume to get everybody's attention. 
I, John, the author of the gospel of our Lord's life, the writer of three epistles, among the three closest of the apostles to Christ, the one who sat next to him in the upper room and the only one to arrive and and follow him all the way to the cross, the one given personal custody of Mary, his mother. All that's remarkably true. I, John, your brother, fellow partaker in the struggles of life in Christ. Nathan Meyer, in his commentary on this text, gave an illustration. He said one of the most endearing things about Franklin Delano Roosevelt was that even though he was a millionaire and he was the president of the United States, having lived for a time among the rural farmers in Georgia while he tried to recover from his polio, which struck him as a young man. While he recovered, he came to know them, and, and from then on, he chose to refer to himself often as a farmer instead of president. In fact, whenever he registered to vote, he registered as a farmer. John had every right to say, listen up, it is I, the beloved apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the point I want to make ladies and gentlemen, is that when you are captivated by the person of Christ, when you and I are anticipating the coming of Christ, who we are is not nearly as important as who he is. The fact that he is coming overshadows the fact that we have arrived. And more than likely, John here is referring in verse 9 to the present tribulation of the first century, but he's mindful of the coming kingdom of our Lord. He provides another snapshot. We see a picture not just of his humility, but his tenacity. He writes in verse 9, the middle part, that he's on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He makes it very clear. He is suffering because of the faithful, uncompromising, tenacious, courageous preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes further in verse 10, And I was in the Spirit. On the Lord's day. This is a reference, I believe, to Sunday. Not the day of the Lord. There's a different Greek construction to refer to that future and terrible day of the Lord, which is still future. Here John refers to the Lord's day. A term only used here in the New Testament in this manner, but further used in the church as a reference to the day in which the church specially worshipped. It was the Lord's day, for it was on that day he rose. It was in a special sense than his day of triumph. By Acts chapter 20, the church had developed further, and as they began to separate from the synagogue, they chose the Lord's day as their day of special worship. Now, you can legitimately worship God on any day, Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. However, the church was choosing to assemble on this special day, Sunday, in commemoration of the Lord's Resurrection, named after a pagan Roman god, sun god. But to them it was, it was the day that their true and living God, who was brighter than the sun, rose. And so they chose to worship on this day. In fact, Ignatius, a church leader writing just 15 years after John wrote this revelation, said, and I quote, the Christians ceased to keep the Jewish Sabbath and lived by the Lord's day, on which their lives shine, thanks to him. 
Pliny, that same unbelieving Roman governor I mentioned earlier, wrote this around AD 110. And I quote, the Christians gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, to sing praises to their Lord Jesus. So what we have done already has been in the tradition of the church of Jesus Christ now for nearly 2,000 years. Justin Martyr, a church leader, wrote 45 years later, We all hold this common gathering on Sunday, since it is the day when Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. So get in your mind here. Here's Sunday. Here's John all alone. But he's having his own little worship service. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. By the way, that in the spirit is simply telling us that John received his first vision on the Lord's Day, Sunday. And the spirit of God was the managing agent of these visions. Now, before we get into this amazing vision, and believe it or not, we're going to get all the way down to verse 20. We're going to finish chapter 1. And that's an amazing uh, miracle to you, I'm sure, isn't it? Let's, before we do it, let's stop and take a good look at what some of this will tell us, not just about John, but you and me. He is now serving what he believes to be his final round of persecution on this island. It was first century Alcatraz. It was a barren island. He was cut off from believers, family, friends, sleeping, many believe, in a cave, ill-fed, ill-clothed, working along with the others, and remember he's... An elderly man. A couple in our church recently visited Patmos in their tour of that region, and they brought me back a little keepsake and and a book full of colored pictures of this island. Though it's developed now, I could see, and somewhat populated to some degree, I could could easily, as I looked at that that booklet, imagine this, this rocky, barren island far from friends and family and the church that he had pastored in Ephesus. Most believe John will return to Ephesus after Domitian dies. But don't forget here, John wouldn't know that. As far as John is concerned, his best days of ministry are behind him. Right? Think about that. God must be finished with his labor and love for the church, for Christ, the chief shepherd of the church. And this is it. This is where it's going to end. But imagine his most significant ministry lay before him, not behind him. God wasn't finished speaking through John. In fact, he is about to give John the future of human history. A view of the coming judgments, a tour of heaven. One author wrote these perceptive words. Sometimes it is out of suffering that God's people have some of their greatest triumphs. At times when circumstances look their darkest, it is in moments of such loneliness and despair that God can shine the brightest. There in the bleakness and the loneliness and the barrenness of Patmos, John's worshiping, faithfully trusting, and God comes to him and reveals his greatest mysteries. Now, it begins with a vision of none other than the chief shepherd of the church. Notice verse 10, the latter part. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a a trumpet 
verse 11, saying, write in a book what, what you see, send it to the seven churches. Send it to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are literal churches, not epics in church history, but literal churches that represent perhaps all churches in any generation. You can see characteristics of any possibility just about in these churches. But these are literal churches with literal problems and real needs, real struggles, and a need to literally repent, some of them, and follow more closely after Christ. However, you notice the churches are spoken of figuratively as lampstands. Look at verse 12. John turns to see the voice that was speaking with with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. By the way, this metaphor of the the church's testimony is, is not new. Shining out to the world. It's clearly explained, by the way, in chapter 2, where the church is warned that unless they follow after Jesus Christ, he's going to take their lampstand away. That is, he's going to take their effective ministry and, and testimony away. It's one of the things we pray as leaders, that the Lord would never take that away, but allow us to continue to shine brightly as we follow after Christ. We'll look at that more closely next Lord's Day. But look at verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. This is the unmistakable messianic title of Jesus Christ. And what great news. He has not forgotten the church. He is in the middle of them. He is walking among them. I found it interesting to discover that this title... The Son of Man was often used when the suffering of believers was in view. In other words, Jesus Christ, who understands what it means to suffer, and promised that those who followed him will suffer, Matthew 10, 31. In fact, Paul said, all who will live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy three twelve, in some form or fashion. But here's the message, take heart. Jesus Christ is moving among the candlesticks. He is in the midst of his beloved bride as they shine forth his glory. Now let's move to the specific things that he saw. This is the brilliant showcase of the Son of Man. John's vision implies at least eight characteristics of Christ. Let's go through them quickly. First, you notice there is a robe and a a sash, the latter part of verse 13. A robe that reached to the ground. This was the robe worn by royalty. The padere. It was an emblem of high rank and dignity. A full-length robes like this were the attire of King Jehoshaphat, the kings of Midian. Uh, the clothing of Jonathan, the prince of Israel, the son of Saul. Others point out the fact that padere appears as the clothing of the prophet Samuel. Certainly, Jesus Christ is, uh, is, is the king of kings. He is the prophet, as it were, of God. It would be perfectly suitable for him to be wearing a padere. However, the most common usage of this word in the Old Testament uh, translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is that this was the robe of the high priest. The word was used to speak of the formal clothing and robes of the high priest when he served in the temple. The high priest also wore the golden sash that John sees here. 
In Exodus 28, verse 4, the golden sash is mentioned as part of the clothing. The idea that these garments picture Christ in his present ministry as the great high priest was a wonderful thought. He had not forgotten the persecuted believers. He has not abandoned his bride. He is currently on active duty as high priest. In fact, the writer of Hebrews pictured the superiority of the ongoing ministry of Christ when he wrote that our great high priest is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives as high priest to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7.25. We have a high priest today who can sympathize with our weaknesses for he was tempted in all things as we are but yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. So the apparel of Christ clearly speaks of his advocacy and his superiority in gaining us access into the court of heaven. Secondly, John says in verse 14 that his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. This is a clear reference to the throne of God. In fact, the image Daniel saw of the ancient of days He's called with his white hair, suggesting the glory and wisdom of longevity. The same description is now attributed here in Revelation to Christ, who would then be equal with the Father, the Ancient of Days, in Daniel's vision. The color white translates the word lukos, which actually has just simply the connotation of, of bright, brilliant. It symbolizes, most believe, his glorious, holy, pure, eternal existence as God the Son. So John sees Christ here physically manifesting the the sense of age, one who was indeed eternally past, present, and future. Third, John mentions next in the middle of verse 14, the eyes, which are like flames of fire. Gabriel is also pictured similarly. This is the spiritual savvy perceptibility of of that supernatural world. Christ uh, can cut through your very being with his eyes. He can literally see, as it were, behind the mask and the facade. Christ is going to be pictured with flaming eyes in Revelation chapter 2 verse 18 and Revelation chapter 9 verse 12. This is a striking picture of his perceptibility. If you like a smaller word, his savvy. He doesn't miss anything. Matthew Henry said it this way, God not only sees men, he sees through men. This perceptive, discerning Lord then is walking among the candlesticks, his churches, and he sees everything. He sees everyone, and he knows everything. Imagine Ladies and gentlemen, our Lord, right now, though invisible to our eyes, as it were, robed in the regal gown of high priest, king, and prophet, walking up each aisle, passing through each row, looking at you, as he does, with his divine perception, seeing our hearts, even now seeing and sensing our spirit, knowing our plans, knowing our motives as he takes perfect review of his church. There's a reason when John sees this, he's going to fall down like a dead man. There's more to the vision. Number four, he refers to the Lord's feet, verse 15. 
They're like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. This speaks of Christ's mastery, his divine right to judge the church. In ancient times, kings sat on elevated thrones. They did that so that those they were judging were always beneath their feet. The feet of the kings then came to refer to authority. And here you have the red-hot, glowing feet of Christ who moves through the church, the judge, as it were, reviewing perfectly, purely, where the church stands. What are its works? What's its spirit? What's the heart of the church? Is it fulfilling its mission? Is it following me? See, don't ever forget that the book opens with Jesus Christ evaluating us, the church. Fifth, John mentions in verse 15, the voice of Christ, which implies his divine authority. His voice was like the sound of many waters. There seems to be some kind of handicap to to deliver correctly the sound of this, what it must be like, the sound of many waters. One day when Christ speaks, all the world will listen even though they now mute his gospel and mock his words. But imagine trying to argue with Niagara Falls. Try drowning out the sound with your puny little voice and mine. Get on one of those made of the mists and go right to the base of where those tons of water continually cascade down, creating that thunder. You can yell and scream and stomp your feet, and it just isn't going to affect Niagara. His voice will drown out the puny voices of man. In fact, in his presence at the final judgment, Paul tells us in Romans 3.19, the world will be struck silent as they recognize in utter terror that they are before him eternally accountable. No wonder people would rather invent a religion And believe this one. Number six, John refers to Christ's sovereignty as he speaks of his right hand in verse 16, in which he holds seven stars. Stars is a reference to the leadership of the churches, which he controls by his sovereign hand. Look down at verse 20, where Christ explains these metaphors. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angel the angeloi, literally the messengers, that is, those messengers representing the seven churches. In other words, these messengers, which were responsible to deliver the message of Christ to the church, represent then the leading authority in the church, a reference, I believe, to the office holder of the church, the presbyteroi, the elder of the church, even more specifically, the leading elder in each church, as we'll see beginning in chapter 2. Let's move Back to this vision, however. Number seven, John refers next to the mouth of Christ. Look back up to the middle of verse 16. And out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Obviously, the word of God. This also refers to the defense of the church by Christ, who defeats all threats against his bride. Threats outside the church and threats inside the church, as we'll see in the letters that follow this vision. One author, uh, John MacArthur, wrote on this vision, those who attack Christ's church, those who sow lies, who create discord, who harm his people, will be personally dealt with by the Lord of the church. His word is potent. Isaiah prophesied that one day our Lord will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. 
Isaiah 49.2. Paul said that the Antichrist will be defeated one day by the breath of his mouth. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. John Phillips commented on this vision of Christ's word. Nothing can stand against God's word, whether as creator, comforter, or conqueror. The mighty word of Christ is invincible. This is what I'll call the indestructibility of the word of our Lord. And imagine what this meant to the Christians under the, uh, the, the sway of Domitian. His word could take everything from them. Rome was in control, not the church. Oh, but they need not fear. Mm-mm. Their lives are under Christ's protection and he is, he is sovereign. Christ is revealed to them and to us, first, in his superiority. Secondly, in his eternality. Third, in his perceptibility. Fourth, in his mastery. Sixth, in his sovereignty. Seventh, in his indestructibility. And finally, number eight, in his majesty. Look at verse 16. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Like our sun. What did John know? Oh, he knew the brightness and the radiance. So we know much more. We know that it is so powerful. It, it, it's, it's losing four, I have read, 0.2 million tons of weight by radiation every single second. Sending that heat outward. The brilliant showcase of the risen Lord was so glorious and so terrifying and so majestic, verse 17, that I fell at his feet like a dead man. I mean, how do you approach that? Splendor. But there on the ground, he lies, perhaps with his head buried in his arms. He hears, don't be afraid. John had heard those words before. He had been in the middle of a storm on the sea, and he was terrified with the other disciples as the Lord walked out on the water to them, and the Lord said, it is I. Don't be afraid. John, don't be afraid. It is I. I'm the first and the last. Verse 18, the living one, I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I've got the keys. You ever lose your keys? This past summer, kids were home from college. We had vehicles going everywhere. Three times we got locked out. Three times I called that guy in the van who overcharged me terribly to spend 30 seconds to open that door like the criminal he was, and get me my keys. Man, did it feel good to get those keys in my hand. I can be locked out. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just say it simply. Jesus Christ has the keys. You can't get locked out of heaven. You can't get locked in to death. Now quickly, two, two points of application. Even when life is interrupted, your Lord is interceding. You're in a barren place, unsure, unsettled. Your high priest is moving in the middle of it all right now, whispering to the Father, as it were, your needs, holding every aspect of our lives in the grip of his gracious hands. And for those who suffer uncertainty and injustice, tribulation, you are never alone. When Jim Dennison was in college, he took a summer mission trip to East Malaysia and While there, he worked in a small church. At one of the church's worship services, a baptism had been planned. 
It was planned for one of the teenage girls who attended. She had announced to the pastor and the church uh, in their custom that she had decided to commit her life to Jesus Christ, and, and she was now ready to be baptized publicly to identify with her Savior and her faith in Christ. During the service, Jim noticed some worn-out luggage leaning against the back wall of the church building. After the service, he asked the pastor about it, and the pastor pointed to this teenage girl, and he said, listen, her father told her that if she was ever baptized as a Christian, she could never come home again. So she came with her luggage. Even when Life is interrupted and uncertain. Our Lord is interceding, especially for those around our world who suffer so greatly. But even you and me, in whatever the tribulation may be, He is interceding as your high priest today. Number two, even when life is darkest, you can continue to follow Him with confidence. What a Sunday. What a Sunday this was for John. As far as he's concerned, he will never go home again. But at this time, then for John and now for us, when Christians face these great difficult days, God reminds him and reminds us of his supremacy. He revealed it to John and he reveals it to all of us on this Lord's Day, thousands of years later. So, beloved friend, Christian, I recommend that we together turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. See him here. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory.